When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the UFO landing at Socorro, New Mexico. It was a sound like a vault door closing. There was a roar and the thing lifted off, drifted horizontally for a while and then shot up into the sky. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Ufologist Kevin Randall is standing by to discuss the landing of a UFO in the desert in New Mexico back in 1964. Before that, next week, Friday, August the 21st, I'll be sitting in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM. I hope you can tune in and listen. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. And if you like this podcast, don't forget about my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, which airs Sunday nights from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern on AM 740, 96.7 FM, Zoomer Radio in Toronto. You can also stream it on zoomerradio.ca, zoomerradio.ca, and on the free Zoomer Radio app, and on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Go to strangeplanet.ca for more information. The UFO landing at Socorro has uh, been wrapped in controversy almost from the moment that police officer Lonnie Zamora watched a craft descend and land. Zamora saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side, but he was told that he shouldn't mention either. It's all documented in Encounter in the Desert, which reveals for the first time exactly what Zamora saw in that arroyo back in 1964 and what an examination of the landing revealed to investigators. Now, Socorro wasn't a standalone case. Other sightings, some of them nearly as spectacular as Zamora's, were reported at the time. 
A study of the Air Force investigation of this case reveals an effort at first to learn the truth that mutated or that uh, mutated into a clever attempt to hide the information from the public. Encounter in the Desert reveals all this and much more. Kevin Randall is a retired Army lieutenant colonel who served as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and an intelligence officer in Iraq. He studied anthropology and journalism at the University of Iowa and holds advanced degrees from the American Military University and California Coast University. He's been studying UFOs for 50 years. He's published dozens of books about the subject, including Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky. He hosts a radio show on the X-Zone Broadcast Network and a blog, A Different Perspective. He's appeared on dozens of television and radio shows, including the Today Show and Good Morning America. Wow, what a pleasure to welcome Kevin Randall. Kevin, how are you? I'm fine. Glad to be here. Now, you were aware of the UFO incident at Socorro, New Mexico for a long time, obviously. But when did it all start to impact you? I mean, when you started to sort of put the the pieces together? Well, part of it was investigating the Roswell case, and we were over on the plains of San Agustin, where I say we, Don Schmidt and I, and of course we were in Socorro, so we asked a few questions around there. So there's always kind of an interest there. But on my radio program, I had on Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. They had said a couple of things on the program that sparked my attention. I never got good answers for it. One of them was they, that they said that there were three witnesses who'd called into the police prior to Zamora seeing the thing land out in, out in the outskirts of town. And I said, did you see the police log? And they never answered the question. Hmm. And I'm not sure why we never got an answer to the question. But that got my interest, and they said uh, a couple of other things like that that I, I found kind of provocative. <clears throat> so I looked at, um, I got back and looked at the Air Force file, the whole Air Force file. And in it, going through it, I found a report from a fellow named Captain Richard Holder. He was an Army officer who was the upraged commander at the uh, White Sands Missile Range, White Sands Proving Grounds. And uh, his duty station, White Sands is really based down near Alamogordo, quite a, far, quite a ways from Socorro, but his duty station was much closer to Socorro. So he lived in Socorro, and within an hour, hour and 20 minutes of the landing, he was called in either by the FBI or his uh, executive officer alerted him, but he went into the Socorro police station, so he's talking to Lonnie Sora. Right. The whole point of this is that he wrote a short report that very night uh, within hours of the landing, and in this report it said that three people had called into the police station and uh, reported uh, either a blue flame in the sky or an object in the sky. That verifies what, what Ben Moss and Tony Angiola had said. It wasn't in the police ro- logs, but it was in this official report that Holder had written. No names are attached to it because the police dispatcher didn't bother to write down their names. I'm thinking, you know, if I was investigating this case in 1964, one of the things I would have said, um, because we knew the path that the thing flew in and flew out of, I would have gone to the area where the uh, thing overflew and knocked on doors until I found some people who had witnessed the thing. We could get some names attached to that and some better description. Sure. Uh, that never happened. I don't understand why. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Carl and Jim Lorenzen, who were the uh, leaders of the Aerophenomena Research Organization out of Tucson, Arizona, who actually had one time lived in Alamogordo, were there within 48 hours. 
this would be something that I would have thought they would have done, but they didn't. Um, Hynek was there, J. Allen Hynek, who was the Air Force consultant of Blue Book. He mm. was there within days. He didn't bother with it. The official Air Force investigator, uh, Sergeant David Moody, he didn't bother. Uh, Ray Stanford was there from NICAP. He didn't bother. I mean, all these people were there investigating this thing, and nobody bothered to find these other witnesses, which I think would be very important. We have um, Zamora's story, and it was taken down, again, literally within hours of the sighting uh, by, by Holder and the FBI agent, a guy named Arthur Burns. So we have good records of that. And then we have the other investigations were done. There was um, a report in the April Bulletin by the Lorenzans. They were there within 48 hours, so we've got a good record there. Uh, we've got Hynek's report. We've got a report from a guy named um, Connor, who was a allegedly, <laughs> I say allegedly, um, the public affairs officer at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. He had driven, actually, Hynek down to Socorro. Uh, he's, he's got a report in there. Um, he had an additional duty as the base UFO officer, which I thought was kind of strange, but so we've got his report. So there's all kinds of documentation leading up to this. So we've got very good documentation of what happened right. within literally hours of the thing landing. Right. When you talk to, uh, to Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, they, they also interviewed, uh, I believe at the time it was the only living person who had investigated the case, and that was a gentleman by the name of Ray Stanford. Stanford. Stanford, yes, Stanford, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, tell me, tell me about Ray Stanford. Well, I actually I, I interviewed him as well, but he was a uh, member of the Aerial Phenomenon. I'm sorry, uh, NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, the Washington D.C. group under under um, Donald Kehoe. But he was out there. Uh, he talked to Zamora. He talked to Sam Chavez, who was Zamora's pal. And when Zamora, after the the thing had taken off, Zamora called the police station and asked for Stanford. I'm sorry, uh, for Chavez to come out. Chavez was a state policeman. And so he interviewed all those people. He talked to the radio um, a reporter who interviewed them as well. He talked to, um, well, he, he was there with the radio reporter in a restaurant, going to have dinner, and these two older women came up and said they had seen the object or heard the object. Audio witnesses is what Stanford calls them. And, but he, never, he didn't get the names and he didn't follow up on it. And when I talked to him, I said, well, do you have the names in your file? He said, well, they'd be dead by now. They were middle-aged at the time. And I'm thinking, but it would tell me where they lived in Socorro. Right, right. And, and I might be able to find somebody in Socorro. They would have family. They would have neighbors and yes, friends that they would have talked to. Precisely. We, we, often, we always talk about Roswell and, and, to a lesser extent, maybe the Aztec UFO incident. But as you point out... Socorro is one of the best examples in Project Blue Book, but still it flies under the radar, no pun intended. Why is that, do you suppose? Because things like Roswell have the possibility of providing all the evidence you'd need to prove alien visitation. With Socorro, you have an observation by a police officer. You have some landing traces, which are interesting in and of themselves. You have... Um, official investigation, you have a lot of things going on with Socorro, but when you get down to it, you have Lonnie Zamora as the main observer. You have indications of other witnesses who are lost to, uh, I guess, the fog of time. So it doesn't have the same robust nature of something like Roswell, although Roswell is kind of 
lost his robustness in recent years. I did a book just last year called Roswell in the 21st Century, looking at it, attempted to look at it in a dispassionate way to see where we stood on it, and found that a lot of what we believed about Roswell turned out not to be true, and a lot of the people who'd come forward or had been found to talk about the case really were basically making up their stories, and that hurt the whole entire case. With Socorro, you don't have a lot of places to go to talk to people. You don't have a lot of witnesses. Uh, you can look at the pictures of the landing traces. You can look at the uh, analysis of the soil samples and the vegetation that were taken and that sort of thing. But when you get down to it, you don't have the same robust nature. To to kind of understand Socorro, you, be, you have to begin looking at what was going on around Socorro at the time, which is one of the things I did. Uh, other other cases that affect the uh, the Socorro case. There was one in La Madera in uh, northern New Mexico. Took place within I think 24 hours of of the Socorro landing, and you have the same sort of thing. The craft on the ground it lifts off in a flame and it leaves um, burns on the ground, which is suggestive of what happened at Socorro. Heineck, who was in Socorro, knew about the case, and he asked permission to go investigate it, and the Air Force said no. I'm thinking, I'm a consultant here, I'm a civilian, I'm going to talk to these people about it, but he didn't do that. The official Air Force investigator didn't do it, but that whole case came about, it was reported by the witness prior to the information getting about out about the Socorro case, so he didn't know about Socorro when he reported. So I find that interesting. There were some other sightings that took place uh, south of Socorro, basically on the White Sands Missile Range, looking off toward the west over the mountains there, that are suggestive of the object that uh, Zamora had seen. So you put all of that together, and it becomes a little bit more of a robust sighting. But nobody had really done that to this point. Everybody kind of talked about Socorro, and then they would go off and, and leave it. They didn't talk about what was going on around it at the time, and I thought that was important to look at as well. Certainly. Well, for those not familiar intimately with the Socorro case, tell us about Lonnie Zamora and what he saw on uh, that night in 1964. You mean there were people that don't know this story? <laughs> Hard to believe, but yes. Uh, according, according to everything in the files, Zamora was chasing a speeder in, in, uh, in Socorro, and he heard a roar off in the distance, and he thought a dynamite check that was on the edge of town had blown up. So he broke off the pursuit of the speeder, and he went over in that direction and came up over a ho- uh, hill and looking down in an arroyo he saw what he thought was an under tu- un- overturned car undertuned car for crying out loud overturned car and he drove down close to it got out of the police car and walked even down closer to it got fairly close to it and noticed two and he used a, a various terms i think he said people once according to one of the transcripts in the blue book files but he mostly called them things um talked about them being the size of uh, children or small adults, and that when one of them looked at him and saw him there, seemed startled, and they both disappeared around behind the landed craft. The craft had sat down, landed. By the time he got there, there was a sound like a vault door closing, and then the thing, there was a roar, and the thing lifted off, drifted horizontally for a while, and then shot up into the sky. He called uh, Sam Chavez right away. And Chavez there was there in a couple of minutes. And I, I make that distinction because it's important, because one of the s- suggestions 
that it was some kind of a hot air balloon that, that we were experimenting with, although there's no evidence of that. And the point is, it wouldn't have disappeared in the sky before Chavez got there. He would have seen it, too, but he didn't. Uh, he, was, he went back to the police station, and within, at least within an hour, probably less, uh, Burns and Holder, the Air Force, uh, the Army officer and the FBI guy, were there basically interrogating him and talking to him about it, uh, to, to what he'd seen, talked about uh, the symbol he'd seen on it, Holder suggested to him, not in a way to suppress the information, but suggested that maybe we they'd not release what that thing looked like precisely, because that way, if other people had seen it and described the symbol, they would be able to eliminate right, the, right. the copycat. Burns suggested to him that maybe he didn't want, wouldn't want to talk about the alien creature. Not, I say alien, that's my word. Right. Um, Zamora never talked about him being alien creatures or extraterrestrials, but the beings that he saw down there... Uh, Burns suggested maybe he didn't want to talk about that because it would open him up to ridicule by other people in the press. And uh, that's kind of what he did. So eventually it came about that he really didn't see anything but white coveralls down below uh, by the craft. Although it, it's clear from the descriptions in the Project Blue Book files of what he said that they weren't more, it was more than just coveralls. But he didn't see a lot of detail uh, about the beings. The thing was on the ground for uh, a couple of minutes at the most. And once it left it off, uh, he went down to see it. Chavez showed up. He w went down. They found a, an area, a bush that was kind of still smoking. And Chavez said that when he touched the bush, it wasn't hot. It was smoking, but it it wasn't hot. And only half of it had been burned, which they found weird. And some of the vegetation around the landing site had been burned. And there were four distinct impressions on the ground, which were, according to the analysis made by the Air Force and the various investigators, were pressed into the earth as opposed to excavated. So something heavy had sat down there and pressed itself into the earth. Uh, and, that, and that becomes important. Philip Klass uh, said that you know there was an asymmetrical landing gear, and he put knitting needles through a Brillo pad on a map of the landing gear things and uh, showed how asymmetrical it was. But when you correct it for the terrain and make a couple of other measure measurements, what you find out is the um, flame was in the center of it, and the landing gear were symmetrical, but it was the terrain that made it look like they were asymmetrical. So, right, I mean, right. what you would expect, although I'm not sure that we can say that an alien race, if they're landing a craft on in New Mexico, would necessarily be as anal about the uh, symmetry of the landing gear as we might be. You would expect them to be because it makes it more stable, but we don't know what the aesthetics of the alien race would be. What do we know about Lonnie Zamora? Lonnie Zamora was a steady police officer who apparently handed out tickets, speeding tickets to uh, the students, both high school and the ones at the uh, mining institute there. So they didn't care for him, but he was fuzz in the 1960s. Uh, he had been, uh, I think, a soldier in, I say a thing, I, I don't know whether he was a soldier or a Marine, I think he was a soldier in Korea, and he stayed with the New Mexico National Guard up to his retirement. He stayed on as a police officer some 15 years after this event, and then eventually took another city job until he retired. Uh, Heineck 
paid him kind of a left-handed compliment. In one of the reports said that, well, he didn't think that Lonnie Zamora was involved in a hoax because he wasn't astute enough to have perpetrated a hoax on his own. <laughs> that is a backhanded compliment. Yeah, yeah. Um, which attests to his honesty. I, I couldn't find anything that would suggest that he wasn't trustworthy, that he wasn't a good policeman. The most recent nonsense to come out is, well, he drank beer, and people saw him drinking beer in the tavern. I'm thinking, oh, my God, he drank beer. Uh, nothing, nothing in any of the reports to suggest he had been drinking before duty on April 24th when the thing landed, during duty or afterwards. And we've got two um, investigators, Holden and Burns. And Burns is an FBI guy, so this is kind of his meat and potatoes. They were well, on the scene awfully quick, don't you think? Well, he lived in he lived in uh, Socorro. Oh, he did. Okay, that explains that. All right. Yeah, as did Holder. So they lived in Socorro. They got there very very quickly, as you say. But there's nothing in any of the reports to suggest any alcohol involved at all. And yet we you know, we're supposed to. And even if he became a, a the town drunk in the years after this thing, it would be relevant to the sighting of April of, of 1964 because there's no evidence that he was that prior to that and no evidence that he was the town drunk at any point. I, I, I don't understand the need to kind of bring this thing up, um, that, he, that he, would, he would periodically be seen in a bar or a tavern having a beer or two. Gee whiz, uh, you know, I, I can't think of many people I know who haven't been in a tavern and had a beer or two once in a while. So. Precisely. Well, I mean, didn't this cause a bit of a media firestorm when it when it uh, first came out? And oh, was was absolutely. Zamora interviewed by the national media? Oh, absolutely. There was there were any number of reports in the newspapers uh, that he had done uh, attempting it. He was very reluctant to talk. After a few days of this, because he could see some of the the way he was being treated by the uh, m- by the media, and other police officers wouldn't have anything to do with the media because because of that. Uh, Walter Cronkite reported it on his CBS Evening News program, and I remember seeing that as a kid. Uh, and of course, that dates me. But you already said I'd been studying <laughs> UFOs for fifty years, and I was in Vietnam, so that pretty well. Ages me right there. They've got you pegged now. Absolutely. Um, so it, yeah, it was. It was. You can go to your local newspaper and probably find a story or two about Lonnie Zamora and what was going on in New Mexico after that sighting took place. So yes, it was a. It was a big story um, in in eight, 1964, and and it kind of led to. And I, I say kind of because this was a period when there were. Uh, lots of good UFO stories going on and eventually led to congressional investigations and eventually kind of inspired the Air Force to really nail down a university to study UFOs to end the Air Force investigation, which was the mission of it was in the Air Force investigation, but it ended up in doing all that sort of thing. And so you have this period at the end of the 1960s where there was an awful lot of interest in UFOs from an awful lot of people in an awful, awful lot of different arenas. When did um, Samora start to talk uh, more openly about the symbol that he saw on this craft? I'm not sure that he really talked openly about it. And I say that because of, of what Burns had said to him and that sort of thing. But what happened was, after the object disappeared, I mean, like the moment it was out of sight, he drew on a scrap of paper 
a symbol. Right. And then later on that night, he drew the symbol for Holder. He signed both of those with his name, Lonnie Zamora, so we know pretty much what he was drawing. That symbol appears in a number of different reports in the Project Blue Book files. And um, a fellow named Rick Baca, who was a 14-year-old boy in 1964, um, drew what the object looked like based on Zamora's descriptions of it. His father, Baca's father, was, I think, a um, paralegal in the city attorney's office in Socorro. And Zamora had gone to that... um, into the office to see if he was in any, any kind of trouble. He wanted to make sure he was in any kind of trouble, and he described exactly what he'd seen. And Baca Sr. described that to Baca Jr., and he made an illustration of it. And they took it back in to show Lonnie Zamora, and Zamora said, yeah, that's pretty much what I saw. But then, under his guidance, they drew the symbol on it as well. And that a picture like that, a pic- that picture actually appears in the April 1964 version of uh, the Apple Bulletin, and I think I think you can find those online now. So you get to 1964 Apple Bulletin, and you'll see uh, Baca's um, illustration with the symbol on it. More of my conversation with Kevin Randall when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Time of the week to bring Colleen Forges on. She's our nutritional therapist and our manager at the Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. I was just browsing on the uh, the Full Script Dispensary site and I saw something called Deep Manos. What is that? Deep Manos by a company called Pure Encapsulations is a product that's a sugar actually derived from cranberries and pineapples and it's designed to support a healthy urinary function. It's particularly useful for people who have a tendency towards urinary tract infections. So it's something that can be taken as a maintenance or it can also be used when someone is experiencing the symptoms of a urinary tract infection to help eliminate that. And how do you take that? Is it a pill? It's actually in a powder so you just mix a little bit of powder in water and drink it, and it actually has a really good flavor. Fantastic. D-Manos for urinary tract infections. Colleen, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. To get your D-Manos, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off, and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No. Me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Kevin Randall is with us. Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Socorro, New Mexico, 1964. Police officer Lonnie Zamaro, eyewitness to uh, an incredible event. And... Um, I, w- I want to go back to the uh, the symbol, and um, you described or you explained where we can see it. But how would you describe it? And does it bear any resemblance, for example, to the symbols that a young Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, reported seeing on that what appeared to be sort of an eye beam back uh, in 1947? Quick answer: No, there is no resemblance to the symbols that uh, Jesse Marcel saw, and nothing that his father saw either. It's, I've, I've always kind of described it, it's an arc with a V underneath it, 
with a line straight down to the, from the apex of the V and then a horizontal line across the bottom, sort of a arrowhead type thing with an arc over it. I always called it the umbrella symbol just because it was a simple way to describe it. The controversy came out in, uh, about that because, according to um, some of the newspaper reports, the symbol is reported as an inverted V with three lines through it. That's the symbol that supposedly they made up to kind of weed out the uh, copycats. And so you get both symbols being reported, although the newspapers talk about the inverted V, and it's not until a couple of weeks later you begin to see the, the proper symbol involved in that. Ray Stanford, interestingly, in his uh, first report said that if you saw the umbrella symbol, that was the real symbol, and the inverted V with the three lines through it was the fake symbol. But when you get to his book, uh, some ten years later, he's got it reversed. Now it's the inverted V is the real symbol, and the umbrella symbol is not the real one. If you look at the documentation, Zamora drew the symbol twice, signed both of them as the umbrella symbol. I mean, that to me is the... Uh, the epitome of, of evidence there. The guy signed the symbols, and there was no reason for him to fake it in the files because they didn't expect anybody to see them. Right. You right. Know, these were the Air Force files. There's a number of other reports in the uh, files, the Blue Book files, and it's the umbrella symbol almost universally throughout it. The lone exception is a letter written, I think it's September 7, 1964, by Jalen Hynek, and he's got an inverted V, and he's got a line above the apex of the V and two lines between the legs of the V. Um, and I think it's just Heineck was confused by the discussions from the newspapers and all of that. There's another document that I have where I think uh, Heineck was dic dictating his impressions or what he'd seen to uh, Jenny Zeidman. And he's, he makes a mention of the inverted V with the three lines through it from the newspapers, but he's also got the umbrella symbol in there as the real symbol. And I think he just got got confused later on about what the symbol really looked like. Um, so I think I think it's pretty well established, and I know Ben Moss and Tony Angiola and Ray Stanford don't agree with me on this, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that the symbol he actually saw is, is the uh, umbrella's symbol. There's almost nothing in the logos for American corporations that resemble it. I mean, precisely, there's a uh, an international paper, I think, has got something that looks sort of like it. But I say sort of. It's not a, an exact match, so it's very confusing in that respect as well. Has any other similar symbol ever shown up in either Blue Book or, uh, or elsewhere? I have, not, I have not found anything. I know that um, at one point, Bud Hopkins was collecting symbols that had been seen by his abductees, and um, Carol Rainey who was his ex-wife and mm. doing some work with it, had asked me some stuff about that at one point. So I went back and tried to find as many examples of symbology as I could that had been mentioned throughout the uh, uh, history of UFOs, including the papers found by um, a guy named Reeves, and I can't remember his name. I keep wanting to say George Reeves, and that's not right. That's, that's Superman. That's Superman. <laughs> Who knows? The guy, the guy from Brooksville, Florida. Uh, his last name is Reeves, and he's not he's not uh, Steve Reeves either, who is Hercules, by the way. <laughs> um, but but he had a bunch of symbols on his paper um, that the Air Force had. Um, there's uh, other symbols. The Kecksburg craft had symbols around the bottom, right, that sort right. of thing. 
but I haven't ever found anything that matched that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of where we are on that. So, and and and. I think the skeptics have made a good point. You know, we don't have a lot of UFO sightings where there's symbols painted on the side. I mean, we we look at an airplane and there's all kinds of crap painted on the sides of airplanes. Right. It's not like we have an Audubon field guide. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Kevin, it's you know, it's no secret that that Project Blue Book was kind of a, a dog and pony show to, to 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 convince people that the Air Force was sort of taking these UFO sightings seriously, but they weren't. Although J. Allen Hynek, you know, started off as um, a bit of a debunker, but kind of turned around. What role did Socorro and that sighting serve in terms of his conversion? And did, what did he say later in life about the, the Socorro episode? Later in life, he became uh, an advocate for the extraterrestrial explanation for Socorro. I think that about the time he got to Socorro, he was beginning to worry about the information and the, the evidence that he was seeing. Um, as you say, he started out as a debunker, he, well, or a scientist who didn't think there was anything to this, and he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon that that might be of scientific value. Not necessarily because it was uh, extraterrestrial, alien in nature, but there was things to be learned. And I think that was one of the things we all need to look at as well, that even if it's not alien visitation, there's something going on, whether it's some kind of psychological phenomenon that we don't fully understand or some kind of natural phenomenon we don't fully understand. But there are things that we could learn about it, uh, learn about humanity just by studying the reaction to um, UFO sightings and the belief in UFOs and that sort of thing, which is not to say that there, it, it may not be extraterrestrial in nature, but but certainly we haven't been able to get our hands on the precise evidence. And I think that, you know, that all comes down to what people will accept for evidence. Some people have a much lower threshold than than others. I'd like to see multiple chains of evidence, and that includes the testimony. Testimony is of, of, of a valuable resource when you're looking at these sorts of things, but something with physical evidence. And here at Socorro, we have that sort of physical evidence. And I think when, when, when Hynek looked at that sort of thing, and later on as he looked at some other cases that were uh, bubbling to the surface at the time, including the uh, sightings that took place in Michigan a couple of years later and that sort of thing, he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon than um, he had originally thought, and it wasn't just the purview of a bunch of uh, drunks or crazy people or uh, people having hallucinations, but there was something more important there, and it was it looked to him as if it was something uh, physical in nature. I, I asked you earlier about why Socorro was overshadowed by Roswell, and as you point out, I, and an argument, a very strong argument could be made, I think, that Socorro is a far more documented case than is Roswell, and you talk about the physical evidence. Let's talk about the the landing traces, and, and I'd, like, I'd be very keen to know what happened to that uh, physical evidence. One of the first things that they did, and I think it was Holder ordered, he had a bunch of MPs come up from uh, White Sands, uh, yeah, White Sands, and they cordoned off the area, so to speak, and they put rocks around the landing traces, the um, the <clears throat> landing gear imprints, and those were photographs. So I mean, uh, in 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 the book, there's photographs that are from the Air Force files of those landing traces, and they're very clear to be seen. 
and they were pressed into the ground as opposed to excavated, which means something heavy sat there. There was also uh, a couple of circular um, impressions in the ground which would have been behind the object when it sat there, and the impression is that that was like a ladder that came out of a hatch, and it was adjusted a couple of times, so you've got an, a number of uh, circular foot. Uh, prints there, and then there were some light footprints as well that suggested that somebody had crawled up into the craft when it took off. You've got the the bush that was partially burned, and they took samples from that, but they found no evidence of any petrochemicals or accelerants on there, which would have suggested, you know, how the bush was set on fire. They found no evidence of that, so it was a, subjected to a heat source that didn't leave any kind of residue behind. They checked for radiation and didn't find anything like that. They um, took soil samples, and I, I was kind of curious, because in the file it said that Holder had taken a bunch of samples that night, and I was wondering what happened to them. And as I was doing research for the book, that was one of the questions I had, what happened to Holder's soil samples, and I came across a report that said uh, when, once Heineck got there, he gave all that material to, to Heineck. So Heineck had the soil samples, and they, they checked that. Uh, Stanford had soil samples that he took that were checked that really didn't uh, reveal anything. Stanford also said that Zamora pointed out a rock to him that had some metal scrapings on it. Right. And um, nobody else seemed interested in it. So <laughs> while they no one were, seemed interested. Yeah, they just sort of ignored that, and they went off to do this this radio interview. And Stanford went with him. He said the minute the re- the radio interview was over, he rushed back to the scene, found the rock photographed it on its uh, where it was so you know he could put it back and then he uh he collected it and took it took it back to um his home in Phoenix uh then he did a dumb thing which was he um was showing it to his neighbor outside and he knocked off some of the bigger pieces of the metallic debris that was left behind and he said they spent a lot of time going over the area with a magnifying glass and trying to find it, but they couldn't. But there were still some small samples left behind. Eventually, they went to Washington, D.C. with those, uh, and uh, Dick Hall arranged for them to be uh, examined at uh, the Goddard Center in, uh, uh, in Virginia, right close by. But... Um, and then there, then there becomes some controversy because, according to the official report, there was nothing extraordinary about these metallic samples, and they were almost all gone. I think Ray still has the rock, and from what he said, there's still some little samples on it, and they might be able to still be able to analyze it given today's technology, something they couldn't have done 20 years ago. But the official report, and that appears in the NICAP uh, newspaper, was that there wasn't really anything extraordinary about the metal. I've always been of the opinion, the one thing that's always frightened me is we get a piece, a, a real piece of a flying saucer. I mean, a real piece of a flying saucer. We take it in to have it analyzed, and they say, yeah, it's aluminum. There's nothing <laughs> to distinguish it from terrestrially based metals. Um, but according to Ray, he was told by the scientist who did the investigation, and this is all kind of covered in the book, um, that it was something extraordinary. And then later on when the official report came out, they said, no, it wasn't, and the scientist suddenly wouldn't take his phone calls and was uh, transferred somewhere else. So hmm. there's a little bit of controversy about that. And I, Ray Stanford and D- Dick Hall kind of fought this thing out in um, 
in the pages of a MUFON journal, uh, I think in the 1970s when, when Ray had uh, published his book. So, uh, you know, that stuff can be found. And, and, and I made copious footnotes throughout the book and so that everybody who wanted to follow up on where the information came from would be able to do so um, by, by reading all of that sort of thing and saying, well, it's the MUFON journal number, which, whatever it is. Right. And the date and the page number, so you could follow up on it pretty easily. One of the the other things that that um, you point out in the book, uh, and that is the number of other cases. This is what we don't hear about: are the number of cases involving sightings of what appear to be alien beings. Often they're dismissed as, well, this person had some psychological disorder and so forth. But you really bring this to the fore that there were a number of celebrated. Uh, cases, whether we're talking about, um, um, was it Flatwoods, West Virginia, and Kelly Hopkins, Kentucky, that case back in was it the early 1950s, but there are others. One of the things that had been sort of a myth in the Project Blue Book is there's only one case involving alien creature, creatures or sightings of beings around the craft that was labeled unidentified was the um, uh, Zamora sighting. But there are actually two others that I was able to find. There might be more, and I haven't found them, but there was two others where it's not written off as a psychological problem of, of, of the person. And, and you look at Kelly Hopkinsville, which was the little creatures that were kind of assaulting the farmhouse, and the people inside panicked and were firing at the creatures and knocking them down, and they'd get up and run off and that sort of thing. But the Air Force, you go over to the Air Force file, and, you know, it's an important contrast. Here's Socorro, and it's treated seriously um, from, from the very beginning. I think it's because there were more than just the Air Force people involved. But you get to Kelly Hopkinsville, which happened um, in, I think, 1955, so it's, you know, nine years earlier. The, the attitude was, <clears throat> well, nobody reported to the Air Force, so it doesn't count. We haven't, we've got information only. But... There is Air Force report. I mean, there was people who reported it to the Air Force. There was an, uh, an officer on his annual tour, which means he was a reservist, and he was at um, in the area, and he heard it on the radio, and so he made an investigation and reported the stuff to to the Air Force. So there was an official investigation, but the Air Force claimed no, and, and that was the kind of thing they did. They stayed away from those sightings, and they made it look like you were uh, hallucinating if you saw anything like this. Kelly Hopkinsville, they wrote it off and said, well, it was probably a monkey that escaped from a, from a circus. Well, A, you are shooting at a monkey with a shotgun, and you've obviously hit it. There's going to be dead monkey. There's going to be evidence left behind. And there was no circus in town for them to uh, see it. They, they also said, well, they had been to a Holy Roller meeting that night, a revival-type thing, and they were all hopped up from, from that excitement. And so they hallucinated the whole thing, but that wasn't true either. So what you see is, in one respect, the Air Force, the military, the government, kind of ignoring these sightings or making light of them as best they can to keep, them, keep the people from uh, being interested in kind of putting down the curtain of ridicule. And you look at Socorro, and you contrast that, how it was taken seriously by practically everybody, Although the investigation was pretty ham-handed handed and uh, uh, lacking, but they were they treated they, they treated it seriously. And Hector Quintanilla, who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book at the time, in his memoirs said this is one case he wanted to explain. 
He had uh, documentation that allowed him to look at top-secret projects, and he went to Alamogordo, Holloman Air Force Base. He went to White Sands and to find out what they were doing at the time, see if it was some kind of black project. And I think that's what Zamora kind of thought it was, a black project. I know Sam Chevis thought it was a black project, and they would get in trouble for talking about it. But Quintanilla could find nothing like that that would explain the sightings and if he could have found it he would have he would it would have been in the project blue book files uh at some point but in his memoirs written many many years later he he said he couldn't find anything and he he was convinced that the answer was in Lonnie Zamora's head meaning that there was something that Lonnie Zamora may have seen or something that influenced him that would would answer hmm. what he'd seen in that arroyo but he couldn't get to it so he had to uh, write it off as unidentified which he did which you have to applaud him for that, but he also said that he, he knew that the UFO hobbyist would have a field day when he when he uh, concluded that it was un- an unidentified case. You've been to Socorro. I mean, our, uh, your you know colleague Don Schmidt has uh, interviewed a lot of the children of witnesses and so forth. He's in a race against the undertaker, obviously, to get to the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the same thing in Socorro. Are there still stories to be un, un, unearthed in Socorro relating to this incident, do you think? Kevin? Well, where we are now is simply that the primary people are gone. And so we're, we're left with the secondhand witnesses. And I, I'm just not a fan of that kind of uh, information because it can get so badly garbled in the translation. I know I talked to a fellow in Socorro named Paul Hart, and he said in the months before Lonnie died that uh, he and Lonnie had gone out and toured the area, talked about the case a little bit, so he got a better idea of what Lonnie had to say. And I asked him, you know, well, what did Lonnie say? He said, well, it was between me and Lonnie, and I really don't want to talk about it. Um, Zamora's wife and his daughter are still around, and I think James Fox, who's doing a UFO project, has talked to them about it and seen some of the material that Lonnie had. And, and what Fox had told me was that... Uh, Lonnie had a uh, big box full of letters and documents that he'd received from people who had similar sightings and wanted to tell him what he'd seen, and also that there were some pictures, but when they went through the boxes, they couldn't find the pictures. Which, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's ufology for you. Well, there you are. Kevin, uh, here's, here we have us lead to the pictures. Oh, sorry, they're gone. Too bad. Oh, dear. Kevin, listen, this, uh, we're out of time. This has been phenomenal. I hope you'll join me again. I would be delighted, but I didn't know you were coming apart. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. I Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Kevin Randall. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. 
I can't sit here and tell you I'm going to live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life. Discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, Mind Wars, a history of mind control, surveillance, and social engineering by the government, media, and secret societies. I was blown away by a lot of what I learned. I knew a little bit about MK Ultra, and I knew a lot about cult. You know, I just never knew that it was so insidious and that there were so many different ways that it hits us through the media and politics and surveillance. But what it did is it made me more aware. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>